Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're kicking off Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month by talking about great Asian American directors. It's only appropriate that we're starting this month off with a creator whose work started this podcast, Karen Kasama. We'll be talking broadly about Karen's work, uh, but more specifically about the movie The Invitation from 2015, which we watched for this week. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have not a panel of cinephiles and cinebites, but just my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? I'm good. I mean, I'm glad. This is why I stick to Connecticut dinner parties. They only kill your spirit. Right? This has got real uh, bad X vibes flowing through it. This is bad, but also has, it feels very distinctly Hollywood Hills in its way. Yeah. It's a good Although, choice of setting. If I am going to go out, going out with a, a belly full of million dollar wine seems like maybe the way to go, you know? Honestly, like if I have to pick, and I understand why those two picked. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, it's just the two of us. We got a dynamic duo just here tonight. You and I, we're going to have a lot of fun. And uh, congratulations, Alicia. This one should be pretty easy to edit. In theory. Although we can find ways to mess it up, I'm sure. Oh, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. I got faith in myself to yes. fuck up, if nothing else. <laughs> So you're doing the recap. I'll handle the kind of basics here at the top, just talking about who made this movie. Like we said, it's directed by Karen Kusama. It is written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, who are also responsible for writing Ride Along 1 and 2, R.I.P.D., Clash of the Titans, Aeon Flux, and Jackie Chan's The Tuxedo. Just to name a few real hits. Good news. Good news. This movie is better than those movies are. All of those movies together, maybe. Yeah. I haven't seen the ride-along movies, but all the rest of them I have, and they're not great. That is, yeah, I'm with you. Oh, man, I haven't even thought about the tuxedo since I saw it in theaters in 2002. Yeah, so this also stars Logan Marshall Green. Logan Marshall Green, who we last saw in Prometheus. And spoilers, he is much better in this movie than in Prometheus. Yeah, it also stars Emily Yatsi, Corin Nieldy. Michael Hussman and Tammy Blanchard. Michael Hussman, you'll remember as second Dario from Game of Thrones, you know, the one you were all disappointed in. Oh, I was going to go with a Haunting of Hill House reference for him. Yes, much better. He had I done think. that yet. This is pre Haunting of Hill House. But if yeah. you want to see this guy be a protagonist in another very good horror thing, definitely check out Haunting of Hill House. We should probably do an episode on it at some point. It's real it's good. Real solid. Yeah. Well, you want to jump into the recap? Tell us what happened here, Ben. Yes. So the movie starts with Will and his girlfriend, Kira, driving through the Hollywood Hills to visit his ex-wife, Eden, who is hosting a dinner party with her new husband, Dario Naharis. Will and Eden are divorced after the death of their son in some sort of mysterious barbecue baseball accident. We don't see the moment, but it he is died of baseball is, bat somehow. Yeah, somehow a baseball bat was something was done with a baseball bat and dead child was the end result. 
which is probably good. We didn't need to see that. And yeah, we're not complaining screen. about not seeing yeah, no, children. This die. was a this was a very effective discretion shot. So they visit Eden's home with her new husband David, and pretty much as soon as they get there, Will is just immediately flashing back and having memories to when he lived there and had a family. It's very effective psychological horror. Very tense. Their other dinner guests joining them are Tommy and Miguel, a pair of wonderful boyfriends. Their friends, Ben, the class clown, wasn't able to relate to this character at all. Found nothing I found. Uh, I feel like Ben also ends up how I would do in a horror movie. <laughs> making jokes a little too long and not quite making it into Act 3. Maybe I get to the end of Act 2, but I'm not making it to Act 3. Uh, and not much Claire, use when shit starts going down this man. I'm no, I'm not. I'm not good. I'm not much use when shit starts going down. Do not look. Look to the helpers. I will not be one of them, probably. But yeah, Ben, Claire, and Gina. And they are your classic group of friends who have not seen each other since Will and Eden divorced two years ago. Also staying at the house is Sadie. She's so weird lady who david and eden are letting stay with him and are definitely banging right like there's definitely threesome implied oh, yeah. with those oh yeah okay cold cold threesome yeah also david's big creepy friend pruitt arrives it is not implied that they are having threesomes with him and if you think man this dude is so fucking weird they should definitely have him play like play a serial killer in something. Good news, David Fincher agreed with you and made him definitely the killer in Zodiac. So if you want to see him be creepy in more movies, definitely check out Zodiac. Got that energy. Oh, he's so big and creepy in this. He got that like stout strength where nothing about him looks like he goes to the gym, but he also looks like he can absolutely rip you apart with his bare hands and barely be trying while doing so. Pruitt's a weird motherfucker who's like, hey, want to hear about how I killed my wife? Because he doesn't know what good dinner party conversation is. Or maybe nope. he does. I don't know. Your jam. Maybe your jam is weird. Yeah, so Will's wandering around. He's having memories. But he's also seeing weird shit like Eden just being all in in some culty stuff about just controlling your emotions through sheer will and slapping Ben and finding barbiturates in people's cabinets. It's some weird shit. David locks the door and Will's like, hey, David, why you doing that? Don't do that. Are you going to kill us, David? And David just keeps telling Will that he is harshing the buzz. It's some real like low key gaslighting where David is constantly just doing the most suspect and creepy things. And then judging Will for Will rightfully calling him out on it. Yeah, it's real like, it was like, man, why can't you just be fucking cool, Will? Will's like, I would be cool if you'd stop locking us in your house and taking the key and shit. Yeah, like, Will's just like, hey, why is your big, creepy, cold wife killer friend here? That's weird. And fucking David's just like, look, I know you're freaked. I know you're sad about your son dying, but be cool. David sucks in this. Yeah. I hate David. He's, he's, he's bad at not being creepy on top of everything. Like, again, you know. Michelle Huzman does a fantastic job. Like, it is a very good acting performance, but David is a truly detestable villain in this film. It is good. It's a good movie. 
So yeah, so David and Eden eventually tell them all about this little group him and Pruitt and Sadie are called are in called The Invitation, which if you don't remember is the title of the movie and is supposedly a grief support group, which is also where David and Eden met. David and I will say this is the one moment that I did really relate to David. Not so much he plays a video that's just a woman dying. It's just a woman's last breaths, and then she dies. That's Student not the film. part I find relatable. What I do find relatable is putting a video on for friends, really overhyping it more than I should, and just having to watch their faces. I'm realizing this video is bombing with them. Like trying to show Flight of the Concords to my parents. Oh, just like, oh, no. Especially when you realize, like, you're going to love this clip. You're like, trust me, this, this is going to be great. And just realizing that it is just nothing. Blank faces. I die inside. I remember distinctly Alicia putting on the first episode of Flight of the Concords for my parents and then asking if they wanted to see another. And my dad's reaction was, I didn't do anything wrong. You can't make me. (laughs) Was it part of it just like they heard New Zealand accents and just immediately checked out? I don't know. I don't know if it was was that or it's just too weird for them. I mean, it was the musical way, aspect, I'm not sure. Fair. I don't know what I expected from my mother watching Everywhere All at Once, but I feel like I should have expected her top line note to just be, didn't like the butt plug scene. Yeah, I, despite hyping up everywhere, everything Everywhere All at Once to everybody, I have not mentioned it to my parents once because I know that their reaction is going to cause friction between us. It's just, oh no it's great it's because no it never causes friction because the movie just goes completely over their fucking heads in every way yeah uh that's that is why i'm a firm believer in subtext is for cowards because even when it's text people still won't fucking get it if they really don't want to signed every racist star trek fan absolutely so after david shows just a snuff film and everyone's like hey that's pretty weird, even if you're giving us $8 million wine. And they respond with culty stuff and party games, which is instead of never have I ever, they play I want, where they say the rules is say what you want to do, and then people that want to do it drink, but really just turns into people saying what they want to do and then doing it. So like cocaine or kissing or cocaine and kissing in Gina's case. Yeah, some people um, like to kiss cocaine. Yeah. And Pruitt gets into his like, I want to tell you, I want to bring the mood down on this party so fucking hard. And we get the whole wife murder story. It's awful. Again, in a good horror movie kind of way. And is very understandably ready to nope the fuck on out of here. Claire is done. She wants out. David is not chill about it. Very pressury. But eventually does relent when Will. Uh, stands up for Claire and then Pruitt follows her out and we don't quite see what happens to Claire but I'm guessing it's not good oh yeah I think Claire's dead oh Claire's 100% dead because we will find out later Pruitt has no issue with continuing to murder people and the last time we see Claire she is talking to Pruitt and then Pruitt returns to the party this cult's deal is their belief in the afterlife is so absolute that it makes murder completely okay. Yeah, it's like the drinking the Kool-Aid, offing yourself to go on to 
whatever other life thing, except also, I guess you get bonus points for however many people you take with you at the time. It's kind of like if the Egyptian pharaohs, how they would have like servants and stuff buried with them and their pyramids to serve them in death. But the pharaoh had to kill them himself first. And they were just your buddies who were unwilling to be murdered. Yeah. Or at and least not knowing that they were being murdered. And they're also just your obnoxious, very L.A., like upper class L.A. Hollywood friends. Yeah. Will has a line in the movie when they approach the house. And Kira has a line about like disbelief that Will lived like that, lived in a house this nice. And Will explains that it's Eden's family who had the money and it was never his. And yet, despite saying that you can clearly see Will is in every room he is in haunted by the life that he had and, and thinks and like, and should still have. It is good. It's a very haunting, powerful portrayal of grief. Will. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get sort of this long, this thing with Choi which ends up being a red herring of like Choi ends up being a complete red herring. Yeah. Their friend Choi is late to the party and nobody's heard from him because like cell service is really bad there. Of course. I did think to myself, Oh, cell service. They don't get cell service up here. Everyone take a drink. Yeah. Yeah. Will will checks his phone at one point and he's gotten a message from Choi and it's like the Choi arrived early. So like, he wanted him to go by and grab some stuff for him, but like Choi isn't there. So clearly they've done something to Choi. But then as soon as like he confronts everybody about it, Choi just rolls up, which doesn't mean they're not all murderers. They just aren't murderers yet. Yeah. Is and they really do play it up the whole movie. So it is a very effective tension buildup of what the fuck happened to Choi. And then it's such a weird fuck up that I expected Choi to be in on it and pull like a scream twist but yeah. instead it is just a complete fucking red herring anywho's will walks around sees sadie making weird merit faces offers to just bang him like right by the pool it's weird it's weird sadie's weird and and will is rightfully just creeped out by everything tommy comes out assures him that la people just be la people sometimes they get into some colds we all been there. No, you haven't. Clearly, you haven't lived in the Hollywood Hills then. Sorry. Sorry, I lost it, my place. Sorry, it all I sort of culminates in, in this, like, dinner scene. Yes, we get a great... Between this and Salem, we've gotten to see some great, tense, everyone's fucking on edge and has secrets dinner scenes where people just explode on one another. Will just freaks the fuck out. Um, He is found and smashes wine glasses, thinking they're poisoned. David lights a red lantern creepily because fucking Michelle Hoosman does everything creepily in this movie. And in kind of every role he's in, if I'm being honest. If I'm being honest, anytime Mike Michelle Hoosman shows up, even when he's the main character, I'm I'm not sure about you. Yeah. Um but he smashes the wine glass thinking it's poisoned, which it is, because Gina immediately dies of poisoned wine. And David David shoots Choi, Sadie attacks Will and gets knocked the fuck out. Miguel, who, did we know Miguel was a doctor before this scene? I think so. I don't know. It's oh, one he of those, did like, identify a pill. Things. He yeah. did identify a pill by on site, which, is that a thing doctors can do? I don't know. Sure. Why not? I, I believe it. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, David shoots Miguel. 
they all flee. Ben makes it out of the house, but just gets knifed the fuck out. And then we honestly get to the biggest twist in the movie, which Tommy survives. Tommy yeah. survives the movie. And the whole movie is really set up to be like, Will and Kira are going to be the only people that have a shot at making it out of this. And then Tommy comes in. Tommy takes out, talks out, yeah. Tommy takes out Sadie with a fucking fire poker. Kira takes out Pruitt with, a, I think it was a wine bottle. Yeah. Was, that, was it a wine bottle? I couldn't quite yeah, She beats the living was. shit out of him with a wine bottle. She beats the living shit out of him. Eden shoots Will in the shoulder and then feels so bad she commits suicide by gut shot, which, for the record, one of the, probably the worst place to shoot yourself in. Don't, don't shoot yourself in the gut. Don't shoot yourself, period, but definitely not in the gut. That is a horrible way to go. That will take you through the entirety of Reservoir Dogs. That was the plot of Reservoir Dogs was just the time it took for Mr. Orange to bleed out after getting gut shot. Think about oh, how long that movie is. Alicia's theory about this was that she shoots herself in the gut because it's symbolic of their dead child and her, her mourning for him. It is. Um, it is a thousand percent, but it's also... A bad way to don't die. Don't do it. Bad way to die. Very simple. No, she did it for the vibes. And don't get me wrong, Eden seems like a character who would do it for the vibes. I'm just saying, don't do it. Bad way to go. Yeah. Um, which honestly, now that we do the summary, makes me realize Will does nothing to stop the attackers. Kira and no. Tommy get the KOs. Tommy gets two kills. Fucking Tommy ends up being the MVP of this like movie. He he goes head to head with David for a while, and I think you know keeps David from wins. from doing the murdering. But I think yeah, Tommy ultimately but, yeah, Tommy David, goes one on one, fucking wrestles the knife out and get and gets to like David with it. And so the movie ends with Will, Kira, and Tommy being our unlikely trio of survivors as they stumble out, finally thinking they're safe until they look out at the Hollywood Hills and realize it is covered in more red lanterns indicating that Colt that like Manson family shit has been going on all night and LA is just overwhelmed in sirens and screams and dog barks and some helicopters yeah it's uh it it feels like bad. a little needless escalation horror cliffhanger but the imagery of them staring out into a hill of ominous red lights is a very effective final image yeah i i'd seen this one before i, I remembered like the red lanterns being a, a more prevalent thing toward the end there's still enough of it to be troubling but i i felt like i mean i at the I end they like were the just like everywhere i did check for the post-credit scene thinking a trust this was going to come down but we did not <laughs> get that crossover now which makes sense I not mean, this time let's be honest it's no i mean that movie came out in 2011 and they're only now even daring to bring them back to the screen. Yeah, I mean, funnily That's enough, I think this movie and Green Lantern made the same amount of money. Ayo! Oh! Shots fired to nobody. I don't think anybody... I don't think anybody who made that movie defends that movie. I've seen uh, this movie anyway, two more times than I've seen Green Lantern. This, which I've seen yes, no this times. Movie, meanwhile, to talk about the movie that we are here to talk about, this movie should be defended because it is a good movie. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. I found it to be a very tense, very psychologically disturbing, 
well-paced with very nice, low-key cast diversity. Yeah. The only problem I have with this, and I think this is the same problem that Alicia had, is that uh, the character of Kira, we didn't mention through talking about this movie, uh, she is black. And that is almost clearly a thing that was done in casting or a thing that they decided on after make like after writing the movie because it's made no reference to and i like not to make any sort of like generalizations but there is no point in the culty weird shit of this movie that my my black wife or any of her family members would have been like no this is fine which seems to be kira's vibe through the first two-thirds of the movie it's yeah, like kira is way too cool with everything going on for way too long. Yeah, Kira is the only black person in this like house full of mostly white and two Asian people where there's clearly like cult shit going on. And like she does not express any reservations whatsoever. And in I'm fact, is like you, on all shit about his own reservations. That's true. Like it is Will whose spidey sense is going off. And for a while, it's kind of Kira being the chip. Being like, God, honey, calm down about being freaked out that your ex-wife is now weirdly, murderly, creepy, not concerned about your dead son. It's so weird, their relationship, because they come to the party together. They're clearly dating. They've been together for some amount of time, her and Will. And, like, she, once they get there, he, like, pours around the house and the party going place to place, and they do not talk. Him and like Kira do not talk for like two thirds of the movie. Goes on a private grief tour. Yeah, and at no point like, does she like scene... show up to check on him and see like, hey, are you cool wandering around this house where you used to live with your wife and your ex wife and your dead son? Uh, well, who was either... it? Was it Sadie who just goes right up to him and says like, so you and Kira aren't working out, huh? Yeah, uh, like it's other so weird. People, like people that know them for like ten minutes can know like, hey, so y'all got no chemistry. You know that, right? Yeah, I, she's clearly just, like, for all the good character writing in this movie, Kira is way underwritten. She is, is oh, not. Yes. She's just written as sort of the girlfriend character. She honestly doesn't even need to be there. I feel like the girlfriend is there just so Will isn't overly emasculated by the very premise of the movie. Yeah. Just so, of like. Being in, like, because otherwise, because if Will doesn't have a girlfriend, then. There's an extra level of humiliation to be going to your ex-wife and her husband's, who are much richer than you, dinner party. Yeah, and she's really just there for him to talk to, like to explain the things yes. that we as an audience need to know, which is is not good writing. Um, or to get, because I didn't mention it, but we get a scene where Will has to hit a coyote. And has to put it out and, you know, has to hit it with a tire iron to put it out of its misery. And correct me if you got anything out of this. This scene seemed to have no thematic bearing or symbolism on Will's character, on his backstory or character arc in any way. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like this is kind of... Like, is this just the most... Kind of lazy symbolism? Like, it's supposed to be like, oh, well... His son was killed with a bat, and a tire iron is kind of like a bat. I don't, I don't know if it's supposed to be just lazy symbolism or... It seems like it's just a mood setter, but yeah, like the coyote scene seems to be nothing. Because if anything, you then have 
like if anything, it seems to inform Kira's character arc as she goes from recoiling at something being hit over the head, bludgeon to death to being the bludgeoner. Yeah. Yeah, that's like, her character arc is going from it's awful that you have to kill this dog to like this human needs to die. Yeah. Yeah. So also, I, I I mean that coyote is way more sympathetic than Pruitt. I yeah. bet that coyote never fucking killed its coyote wife. And that feels so much like there's so many movies like Get Out and dozens of other movies where somebody is driving and, and hits an animal very symbolically and it's usually a deer. And it feels like somebody wrote that as a deer and then they were like, fuck, this is this is LA. I guess it's a coyote. Like, that's what you might hit, right? In LA? Sure. Yeah, so it doesn't really like it it's cast well in that they have a diverse yes. cast of people they bring in, this, but they don't pay a great deal of attention to like, I don't know, ma- making low- those casts that casting makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, it's more just like, just kind of reflecting this naturally, this like diverse LA upper crust, which, you know, definitely exists. You know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, the, this movie is not about gender, it's not about race, but I do appreciate that, like, it's, I certainly appreciate them doing this instead of this friends group just being all white people. There's yeah. nothing that, could have stopped this movie from being all white people. So just the fact that they took the time and effort to make sure that they, that wasn't the case. It's, I enjoy it. Like I enjoy just that it being a more diverse horror movie, at least in casting. And if it's not going to be the content of the story, then I still appreciate it being reflected in casting. Yeah. there's And there's definitely some elements of class stuff in there as far as, you know, them, being sort of this rich upper class couple who's sort of, even though their friends are sort of upper middle class, they're like really a step above that. Well, we right? never, we know David is a record producer and Miguel is a doctor. And then we never learn what any of the others do. They're just vaguely yuppie LA people. LA. Yeah. I think Choi says his, his job has something to do with IT or programming, because that's why he's ends up being late as he has to go back to help. I just something him say like I got do. a work call, and then I just assumed he was on the phone dealing with that for two hours. Yeah, it's presumably what it is. How do you feel like it? It does as far as being a feminist film. Again, it's the kind of thing where I do appreciate the gender parity in the cast. You know, you have yeah. Tina. Like, you have Gina, Claire, Kira, like, you know, this is not a situation where one character has to represent the woman. You get everything from the pragmatic person who noped the fuck out to a total victim to a badass survivor to the villain. I would say, so I do always, always appreciate that level of, you know, when there's that many women characters or that many, as many minority characters in there, like, nobody has to be as defined by that status. So I always appreciate that, how it let, how a certain level of low-key, of just, I think, just in the background, diversity just lets people be people more than have to be defined by it. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I would I do say also... really, you gotta look at Eden, I think, for the feminism I... in this movie. I do also appreciate that on the like side of being 
being feminist in a way that is, is being not toxically masculine. You do have at the center of this story of grief about losing a child. And it's not about the mom being, you know, torn up about it and the dad being kind of fine or whatever. Or, you know, the dad doesn't no, like not at all. shut himself off and not feel things like is, is so often if the anything, case with stories like is, this. It is the opposite where Will, for as flawed as it is, is trying to feel and move on in a truthful, in a truthful, honest, I look at those fucking totally not redundant synonyms in a more emotionally, emotionally raw yet fruitful if painful way whereas it's eden who's trying to shut herself off just deny herself the emotions that are clearly you know eden has just built up these walls this emotional dam and the whole movie you can just see it like it is cracked to fuck up and back and it is just threatening and that dam holding back all these emotions is just threatening to crumble at any moment. And this movie's great at building tension, like because that almost becomes a ticking time bomb on its own. It's just like when are we gonna like when is Eden just gonna let it all loose? Yeah. Yeah. And and, and when she does it, I think it's an unfortunate time for her. Yes. Yeah, she 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 is all all aboard to quietly murder everybody with poison, but the point where they start shooting people, she's like, it's not supposed to be like this. Is not as not quite as happy with that. Which um, again, we as we discussed, Eden is all about the vibes, and these are very different vibes. Yeah, shooting people, gone, very bad vibes. We we have gone from Anthony and Cleopatra to Manson family. But yeah, as far as the vibe check goes, quite different vibes. Yeah, how do we feel about the gay representation in here? We do have, we do have gay representation in this movie. We have a gay couple. Not the heart of it, but a a major part of it. Yeah, I mean, a it's realistic in Hollywood Hills. Say what you will, I've absolutely met guys like them in L.A. Those dudes exist, hundred percent. I mean, again, I enjoyed that they still that they were given, despite being supporting characters, they were given a great amount of agency. I mean, again, Miguel is the one character we get of kind of, you know, whose backstory plays a role, like that he is a doctor. Tommy fights back more than anybody, including Will. Tommy really takes agency into his own hands and ends up one of the survivors, which I guess retroactively proving one of the Scream 4 rules, right? I'm going to say, having Mm. now seen a few other movies, I'm going to say the rule is, if you are queer in a movie, one of you will survive. If you were the one queer character, you were probably in luck. If there's multiple queer characters, only one of you is making it out. That sounds probably more accurate. Yes, they have figured out that you only need to keep one alive to avoid barrier gaze. Yeah. I think the only way that two queer characters make it out of a horror movie is if the goal of the movie is for one of them to find the other one and save them. Yes. Yes. And then I, I guess the other question would be, how do we feel that this movie didn't dealt with like mental health stuff? I mean, certainly it deals with a lot I mean, of that's like, the heart. Stuff. I mean, that's the heart of the movie. Yeah, that's that's the big enchilada is grief. It's the and I think it's what the movie so masterfully depicts is 
because really it's only kind of the last 20 minutes or so where it becomes like this survival horror where like they are truly under threat of death and have to fight their way out of this house, which normally would be a criticism if the first hour 20 of this movie does not didn't do such a good job pulling off such a tense, unnerving like atmosphere that really just kept you guessing. And that's all just through how Will's grief is depicted. I mean, I like how there's like no transitions into flashback. You're just reliving the past along with him. Yeah. He's, just, I mean, you know, that, he's seeing things and being in rooms. And suddenly his, his son is there with him. I, I think it's like, very it's, effective. Like it's paced very well too. Like the first time you see the kid in that, like the first flashback, there's no reason to think you are in a flashback where like to the point where you wonder like, wait, where's happened to the kid? We just saw the kid. Don't they have a kid in the house? Where's that? And then, you know, the movie does a good job giving you the breadcrumbs to piece it together yourself before we get to a fit, the big official, like, ah, baseball bat. Yeah. I think this would be a very interesting movie to see, not going into it, expecting it to be a horror movie, you know? Yeah. Um, if if I you mean, just thought again, it was a drama and then it just takes that turn in the last 20 minutes, that would be really interesting. The last 20 minutes is definitely what puts it squarely in horror territory. But I feel like that first hour 20, like it's so tense and like the blow and like those blow ups and just the way his emotions are just constantly being used against him and yeah and just like reality questioned out from under his feet at the very least in like thriller territory drama thriller there is i mean as much as it ends up just being a red herring everything with Choi like it's very effective and again logan marshall green does a very good job of someone who's just like sense of reality is just crumbling beneath his feet and he doesn't know and he doesn't know if he should be trusting himself or not for a good chunk of this movie even well, everything screams in his face that he is that his instincts are right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like and when Choi does show up, like, like, because again, it, it's seeded so much through the movie, and then you get that message. I really thought that is like, oh fuck, here it is. This is when the movie turns. And then when Choi shows up, like, does show up with a perfectly innocent explanation. I like, I felt a, a little bit on board. Like, I knew it still was probably murdery. But it is a very effect. Like it does kind of, if you don't know it's coming, I think, you know, I was right there with Will, the character, just feeling thrown off. Yeah, the movie kind of gaslights you as a as a viewer. Yeah, it's like, yeah, like, this is important. This whole thing with Choi, this is very important. You're gonna want to keep an eye on that. And then it's like, ah, I mean, the- why did you think there was something wrong with Choi? No, it's fine, man. What were you thinking? Oh no, it is murder. <laughs> yeah, what's the line we get? the flakiest Korean in LA. Yeah. Which I'm like, is that a stereotype? Is that an anti-stereotype? I don't know what you're trying to say here, Miguel. I don't know enough stereotypes about Koreans in LA for this to click. I've been to enough stand-up shows to know people just make up fucking like stereotypes at their asses. Yeah. So I, I think it's fair to say we probably both recommend this one, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, and also I do just want to say, in terms of mental health, it's not just Will. Like, we do see Eden. Like, we get a flashback to Eden's suicide attempt. And, you know, while she's definitely one of the villains, like, I do feel the movie has a lot of sympathy still for Eden and 
really depicts her as, you know, like, whereas David is just portrayed as an out-and-out villain, I feel like Eden is portrayed as a tragic victim of her own grief. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, she's definitely depicted as somebody who gets pulled into this cult and all their shit by, like, being so caught up in her own grief that she, you know, as so many people that get into cults, like, they don't see the horrible weirdness of it because they're so distraught or dealing with with such heavy stuff themselves. Um, and, you know, another good showing of how fucking just awful people will just prey on people going through grief who've lost control and all of that. Yeah. I'm and talking... Important that we got those flashbacks, though, like when they were in the bath, just to show us who Eden was in the life before, like that her and Will had, like in the life before when their son was still alive. And I do think it was just important for us to see those, even if they it wasn't long, just bits of who Eden was, so we can fully appreciate just how off her fucking rocker her behavior is when we meet her in the present day. Yeah, I think without that, we might not know just how how much she has changed, how much it's unsettling to, to Will and the other people there. And yeah, it's an important bit of storytelling, like just to give us that. I, I think our, I think the audience's understanding of the character would be a lot less comprehensive with that. I think it's a pretty necessary piece. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's absolutely fair to say that we would both recommend this movie. And speaking of Karen Kusama, I mean, we've also... Both highly recommended Jennifer's Body. If people haven't listened to the first episode of this podcast, it's a very different movie. The mood, the vibes in that one are as different as can be from The Invitation. But uh, I adore that movie. Here, so she can't rain on our loving Jennifer's Body parade. Yeah. It's a great fucking movie. Yeah. An incredibly well directed. It's an amazing fucking movie. If, if you disagree, say something. Fucking see, amazing movie. Yeah, I love it. I mean, we've talked about it ad nauseum on that first episode. I think the other big thing that ties into, you know, the horror side of things is she is both a director on a few episodes and a producer of Yellow Jackets, which I know you're a big fan of. I am a huge fan of Yellow Jackets. If you haven't seen Yellow Jackets, absolutely check it out. As of recording, the second season just started. It is... Stephen King meets Lost. It is a wonderful cast, thrilling plots. It is chilling, mysterious. Ah, just all the good things. If you like just like thrilling mysteries and creepy plots, absolutely check out Yellow Jackets. Can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I I still have not caught up with Yellow Jackets, but uh, I've heard a lot of good things. And it sounds like something I'm very much going to enjoy once I, I get time to sit down with it. Watching Yellow Jackets really does make me appreciate how the survivors on last were in fucking easy mode. Yeah. Like Yellow Jackets, they're landing in like the fucking Canadian forest. Where, like their most experience they have is like one fucking like arguably psychotic girl who took a few first aid classes. Like the lost that plane goes down and they are in a tropical island where they have wanton choice of fish fruit and boar they crash they're like oh good we have the world-renowned spinal surgeon a survival a hunting expert a guy who specializes in communications technology 
what do you do? You were raised in a fishing village and know how, and are an expert fisherman. Fantastic. Everything the lost people needed, they got. And the girls in yellow jackets get none of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one I'm excited about checking out. I think the other big horror thing that Karen Kusama has been involved in is XX, which I don't know. I think we've actually talked about on here, but we'll have to at some point. It's an anthology movie with a series of like horror shorts, all directed by women in horror. So like definitely check that one out. Her, her segment is great in that, but the whole movie is really great. So it's, it's definitely worth getting in on that. Taking all of those things off the table. I mean, since we've already talked about them, uh, Ben, is there anything else you'd like to recommend to people? No. Yellow or Jackets. Just, was my just Yellow one. Jackets. Just Yellow right. you, you put me on the spot and I got fucking nothing. No, I think, I think Yellow Jackets will keep people busy for more than enough time. You know, we're trying to cover people who who have more like credits and everything on horror at this point. Um, so I was going to recommend a, a film by someone who has significantly fewer credits, but that I think is definitely worth a look. If you guys haven't seen Uma, it's directed by Iris K. Shim. It came out, I think, just last year. It is, it's an okay horror movie, but it's got Sandra Oh in it. And I mean, Sandra Oh is always worth watching. And the horror movies, it's okay. But it's, it does deal with like specifically, specifically with Asian American issues and family issues and, and stuff like that, that like we don't visit too much in horror films. And it's, it's definitely uh, worth the time to check out. It's about 90 minutes long and it's, it's really solid. And it's, you know, Iris Kishim's, I think, first horror movie. It might be her directorial debut. Oh, nice. Let me see if I'm, yeah, I'm, I might be. Yeah, it's first. It's the first one I've seen. I don't know. She might have one other. She's got a couple of short films, but this is the first like large release one she's had. So definitely worth checking Keep out. Get on out. Yeah. All right. I think that uh, that does it for us. If you want to find out more about uh, us and what we're doing, uh, you can check out Emily at Megamoth on Twitter at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at Ben the Con and on their website at BenConComics.com. You can pick up their books, including pre-ordering L. Campbell Wins Their Weekend, uh, their debut middle grades novel from Scholastic. And for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome58 and on my website at jeremywhitley.com, where you can check out everything that I write, including my brand new graphic novel, The Dog Night, which I wrote and Brian Go Illustrated. When you're listening to this, it is uh, mere days from coming out. So check it out. Yeah. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and the Prague Horror Pod, where we would love to hear from you. And speaking of loving to hear from you, wherever you're listening to this, we would love it if you would rate and review it so that other people can find the podcast. Giving us five stars helps the uh, them recommend it to other folks to listen to. So we would love it if you Give would do them. that for us. Give us them stars. It needs them. Yeah. Next week, we should have a bigger crew back in the house because we will be talking about Taika Waititi and what we do in the shadows. The original film, not the TV show, though I'm sure we'll talk about the TV show as well. But the, if you haven't seen the film as well, it's one of my favorites and you should absolutely check it out. Oh my God, I'm so fucking excited to talk what we do in the shadows next week because holy fuck, one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah, it's really great. And one of... Uh, one of Taika Waititi's like actual on-screen acting credits where he's not playing a rock man or Adolf Hitler or rock Hitler. Sure. That's, that sounds like a horrible 
musical? Does. Is that just the producers? I would not. I would not go watch it. Yeah, that's that's just the movie. That's just the play they're putting on in the producers. What they made bloody Andrew Jackson? You telling me we can? You can make a musical about one genocidal world leader, but not another. Where's Whoa. the line, Broadway? Yeah, yeah. Did I just fucking drop a real ass take? We'll leave you on that yeah. note. Until next time, stay horrified. <laughs>